0: Hi, hey everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Orit Sinclair is a freelance translator and editor working mainly in the field of Jewish texts. She works as a copy editor at the Koran Talmud Bavli and is currently working on the team translating the commentary of Rabbi Adin Steinzeltz on the Tanya. Sarah Daniel is a translator and editor for Koran Publishers Jerusalem. She is part of the translation team of the forthcoming new Koran Tanakh. Her other translations include the Koran Slichot, also forthcoming, various works of contemporary biblical scholarship, and ancient and modern poetry and prose. Sarah and Orit, it's wonderful to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Yosefa. It's so nice to be
0: here. It's also great when I get to talk about professional things with people I'm also friends with, because when you meet people in the park or on Shabbat, we usually don't schmooze about our daily uh, our daily professional activities. So it's also a really good opportunity. Um, I would like to uh, remind everyone that we're in a series right now on women in writing. Uh, and we have been discussing women and halachic writing uh, Women writing Torah wisdom. Uh, and today what we'll be focusing on is I think a really unique angle, which is women translating Torah related texts. Uh, these are women who often aren't heard. Uh, the nature of the job of translators is that they are behind the scenes and often people, so people who like being behind the scenes. Uh and so I, I really think this is a unique opportunity to speak to women who I think are remarkable, interesting, inspiring, uh, and intellectually engaging who are doing work that will benefit thousands of people and they'll never know them necessarily. Uh and we'll we'll talk about that piece. But uh but this is another piece in the puzzle of women in their contemporary writing today. The the world and the Torah uh, was created with words. Uh, and we are a people of the book. We are a people who focus very much on literacy, on reading and writing. And, uh, and our, the crux of our religious existence for so many of us, for so many people, really depends on, on words. And so I think that this is a unique opportunity to be able to speak to women who have on their shoulders the burden and the gift of bringing those words to other people. So without further ado, I want to first start by asking you both how you came to your profession. Oh, uh, Reid, I want to start with you. The road was a little bit windier, uh, based on the little bit I know about your background. So I'd love to hear about, about how that happened.
1: Um, yeah, for sure. So I think that in retrospect, looking back at it, it makes so much sense that I ended up in this profession because it just combines two of my major passions. Um, which are language and Torah. Um, But yeah, I I definitely didn't come to it straight away. I think that when I was young and kind of deciding, okay, what am I going to study? What am I going to be? I was just trying to be very practical minded, very like parnassa focused. Um, I knew I wanted to be in Israel and I wanted to make sure that I was like setting myself up, you know, in a proper way for that. And... um, so yeah, it uh, it took me a while. I, did, I well, first in Australia, actually, I I got into I, I did a year of medical school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like all good Jewish women, that's what was, I'm hearing. I was premed. I was premed. I studied <laughs> biology too. Okay, yeah. Yeah. there you go. Uh, yeah, that's what I've learned over the years. That it's very common. A lot of rabbis also uh, started in started in medicine. So uh, that was very much uh, kind of something that I just got into. And then there was this pressure of like, of course, you know, if you got in, it was very hard to get in. So if you got in, of course, you would want to do it. You should want to do it. So I started it. It wasn't for me. I came to, came to Israel, made Aliyah. um, And then I decided to do a degree in accounting, which was, you know, I kind of thought, okay, I like maths. I like sitting at the computer. I, you know, I can, I can sit, I can do it. It's something practical you can do and have a family and be at home and all these things. Um, so I did it and I, but I really wasn't happy. Like I really didn't enjoy it. It wasn't, it wasn't me. Um, and then we went on to Australia. Um, my husband was the in Sydney and I kind of was able to use that opportunity to, to press reset and say, wait, what, what am I doing with my life? What, what do I love doing? And, and let's try to, try to refocus and do that. Um, so I did a master's degree whilst we were there in Australia in applied linguistics in order to kind of get, get into this field of uh, editing and, and translating. And it just, it made, it made so much sense, you know, like people, people who knew me really said like, of course, like, of course, that's, that's what you should be doing. That's what you love. So you should be doing it. Um, and then when we came back and I started trying to, to work in the field, it was, it was very much a lot of siyata d'ishmaya, a bit of like friends, knowing friends who were in the field. And, uh, and I landed on the current Talmud Bavli uh, copy editing team. With a group of amazing women, and uh, from there, a, a lot of other projects that I've come to yeah, work with. Yeah, it's a group of women on the copy-editing team? The copy-editing team was all women so. uh, on the Talmud. Yeah, we are a group of about 10 women, amazing women, some of whom, uh, three of whom had, have been in the field of editing in the Torah world for like 20 to 30 years, wow. who were really inspirational and had so much experience and so much to, I really learned a lot for, from them. Wow.
0: Okay. Sarah?
2: So it sounds like doing a year of the sciences is prerequisite for being a (laughs) a translator. (laughs) Because again, when I just when I was we were just getting married, and I was like, "What should I study? Should I study something?" I was like, I was drawn to biology and genetics, and I started biology. And everyone said, "Yeah, you should go for it; it's more practical." My father, who obviously knows me, was like, "Nah, you should study literature. You should study literature." So I started biology, and after a year, I. Switched back to literature, much to his um, satisfaction, hmm. and I studied literature in Ben already. And my f- so my path to translation was more tra- more straightforward than already. It's already in um, Ben. In fact, even in the army, I did touch upon translation. I was in um, Shimon and time, and oh. I did work a little bit with translation. Um, then already in university, my some of my professors would ask me to translate things for the department. I worked a little bit to the Ben Gurion um, f- fundraising, um, international affairs, um, and I did some translation work for them. Not, you know, very technical, nothing um, particularly interesting, but it did get me into the world. And my father had already been in; um, he already started publishing when we made Aliyah. I started working with him a little bit, did some translation. One thing led to another. Definitely helped that I was in Alan Shvut, surrounded by a lot of Torah-loving intellectuals who... Totally. ...asked me to translate things for them, and from there just became my profession.
0: I'm curious also, Sarah, we could start with you. I'm curious how, you know, all of us here have a bilingualism that we've all acquired at a different stage of life. Um... I acquired it at age twenty-two. Orit, you acquired it at what age?
1: I mean, I learned Hebrew in school from pre- from preschool and all the way through. Yeah, I know. But, um, so did I. I. But when did you actually, at, at twenty, I made Aliyah. At twenty, and okay. it actually it took speaking-wise, it took me a long time to like to to start speaking in Hebrew. Yeah, it's a different skill—the yes, speaking absolutely. and the
0: understanding written written words, especially if it's Jewish texts, where in itself the vocabulary something they might be familiar with just from growing up in a religious world. Right. And Sarah, when when did you make Aliyah?
2: So I made Aliyah at a funny age for making Aliyah. I was fifteen I oh, was with my family. It's rough. It's funny because I don't know what it's like in Australia. I know that in the states they have a better Hebrew education. In England, Zelomashu. Yeah. I remember as a child at one age realizing I was basically, when I was saying Shema, I was just saying a memorized, string of memorized syllables that meant nothing to me. I didn't know what I was saying. I just said the sounds I had been taught. But I made Aliyah and Kitayud, and um, I acquired pro- you know well-spoken Hebrew pretty quickly, though I wonder, I think a lot of Olim feel this at one point, that it's not that we're bilingual so much as we sort of know Hebrew and we sort of know English, and neither is particularly good, um, but I've always, but I actually did my ma- my um, first degree and then my master's in uh, English, in English literature, so I wasn't And wrote your to... thesis
0: about what, Sarah?
2: Oh, I, well, that's, that's <laughs> kind of important. I wrote my thesis about um, Harry Potter, <laughs> Jane Eyre, and the Freudian family romance. Whoa, I want to um, read that. You, it was fun. It was really fun. I mean, if you're studying literature, you might as well write about Harry Potter, right?
0: Clearly, one of the highest forms, yeah.
2: Um, my Hebrew, I always, I've always felt more comfortable in English, but Dafka, with working with Hebrew all these years, I feel like my Hebrew is getting richer and better with, with the years and as I work on text. And I also appreciate Hebrew a lot more for its, how it's crisp and says more with less Yeah, English totally, year.
0: of course. And I'm, I'm just curious also from a language perspective, how proficient, I mean, at what point can someone say, oh, I can translate text? Meaning, let's say someone is a good writer in their, in their mother tongue, which right, everyone's mother tongue here is English. At what point can someone say, yeah, I would be able to translate a text well? Meaning, what, what's, is there a level of proficiency? Is it just a sense that someone has? I don't know. I do think some people
2: think they have it. And once you actually start you t- try to translate, it doesn't always work for everyone. Um, I do think you need to be a good writer. That's the most important thing about mm-hmm. being a good translator. Your
0: mother, your is mother being a
2: good, la- a good writer in the language that you translate to. Right. Um, it's hard to say how good your, your proficiency of the language you translate from is. Um, it has to be good, but you know, they're,
0: they're, it does have to be okay.
2: Can I take a pause for a second yeah sure, pause?
0: but I think that was good <coughs> saying okay. that uh that it has to yeah. perfect has to be perfect, mm-hmm.
2: and you have to really have a feel for the nuance and how you use words and how you and above all you have to be a good writer um it depends what the purpose also it depends what the purpose of your translation, what kind of translation because if it's something more technical, then I don't know how good your grasp has to be of the original language as long as you're coming across properly in the sort in the wow well, okay. I there's yeah into language the and there's, into uh, the
0: language or translating target language into. thank
2: you yes it's a good thing i do words people
0: yeah do <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, we do you have any any you agree with that you have any other, I other thoughts i absolutely agree with that um, i think in in the original language it, yeah it's just important to kind of have a knack for for just how it flows how how um like there's a lot of talk about how language and culture are so tied up together and like i feel that a little bit of like okay if you if you're translating a certain text like know just the background of, like, where it's coming from. You don't necessarily need to have all the vocabulary, all the words, mm-hmm. but just, like, know who's, who's writing it and who, and who they are writing it for. Um, who the target audience is. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I think we'll touch upon this also in the, in the coming portions of our conversation, but when you translate a text, you both have almost complete control over the tone that the text will take into the culture it's being translated into. Uh, Meaning, I'll, I'll say, I won't say the name of it, Sarah, but something that you've worked on that I felt that you did such a phenomenal job on the book that it was way better in the translated version than I thought it was in the original. Meaning there was something so sweeping. There was something so you created a world in the translation that I didn't feel existed in the same way in the original text. And so it's it's there it's a very powerful position. I mean I don't know we and when we do these things we can't think about this all the time because it would kind of like make us nervous, right? We can't we can't think about the the power we have, right? Think about it when we move with our kids. It's it's overwhelming. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't, doesn't work well. But um, but it really, when we translate a text into another language, we're creating a new culture with that of that text in a new one. That wasn't very eloquent, but we all understood what I mean, right? We're, we're, we're taking that text and putting it into another culture. And so it's literally coming alive again in, in another space. Okay, we're going to touch upon that as we, as we keep going. I'm just curious, do either of you engage in writing in other
1: forms, currently or in the past I love writing so much um I've always loved it at the, the short answer is no not at the moment but um I feel like there's definitely some kind of potential within me to like uh to do that at some point in like creative writing or something um, definitely I mean maybe creative writing maybe you know maybe a doctorate one day maybe a blog uh-huh. I have no idea but okay. um, there's something there the, <laughs> the, the, ener- the energies
0: out. are are percolating Absolutely. okay Sarah what about you
2: Yes, I have definitely been writing in my head for years. <laughs> I really hope to write properly one day. Um, this has not been a very conducive year for um, going for going beyond what we do in our day jobs and mothering, because this has yeah, been, been This has been an all-consuming year. Um, I hope there'll be the time for that in the future.
0: Yeah, I think also that I I, I also love to write. I, I don't. I did actually translate, by the way, for a number of years for a, a number of matan programs, but. I find that when we have, when you speak about writing in your head, if I don't write it down immediately, it disappears. Meaning it's no longer there. I'm not one of those people who can come back and be like, "Oh, I had that idea," you know, three weeks ago, and now I get. I need to write it when literally the iron is hot. And if I don't write it, a creative piece, usually a creative piece or, uh, you know, a creative piece exploring something in you know a self, or if it's more of like you know a Facebook or a blog thing, um, if I don't write it down right away, then it. It disappears like the muse just goes away and it's a very it's a little bit of mourning that happens for me when that happens you know and 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 you need to be at a certain stage of life where you can sit down and write immediately
1: absolutely I have to
0: say that when I was writing my doctorate I actually wrote more because I was by a computer so I was like oh okay so if I take 10 minutes right now write the idea down while I have the words while that opening and ending sentence is there I'll be able to get it out as opposed to now where it's like forget about it it just disappears in thin air So I'm curious if you either of you look at translating as an art. Meaning you look at it more in your life as, as a job. Do you do you feel that there's an artistic aspect to it that maybe comes up sometimes or just curious if that Sarah, maybe you want to share first?
2: Um, definitely I mean also what's your definition of art? If we want to define translation as an art, I mean as opposed to a science, which is there is a clear, obvious way from X to Y. But art is a lot of room for interpretation, room for our own... No two people are going to translate the same. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is, an, it is an art in that we bring our own our own way of thinking to it, we bring our own feel to it. I think it is very much. It's, it's an art the way that any writing... Not any writing, I guess, technical, but
1: I think so. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that um, a, a lot, for me, a big part of translation is kind of trying to get into the head of the writer and um, and and kind of get, speak with their voice. Mm-hmm. But because the two languages are not just a list of vocabulary that match up one-to-one, there is this very creative element of like, okay, I need to take their voice, not my own voice, their voice, and and express it beautifully in the way that they would have said it if, if they had had the proficiency, mm-hmm. um, again, for the specific readers. Um, so there's there's a huge creative element uh, in that.
0: Okay, I'd like to get a little bit deeper into the text that you each actually work on. Okay, so Sarah, for example, you spend, I think, most of your time really dealing with biblical text. Is that safe to say that for the past while? Um,
2: yes, it is. It I, I just, <clears throat> how it was a funny... It was actually a very funny way, as even though I found my way into translating quite um, naturally, the way I found myself in Tanakh happened, I guess, by chance. That I had been translating here and there. I actually worked on Rav Beni Lauzi, <clears throat> Yomiyahu, Um And then I was in Alan Shvut, and I had a kid in Yoni Grossman's gun. And, you know, like, you know, talk about um, um, serendipity. And he says to me, Ray, you're a translator, right? I'm like, yes. I was just finishing my master's thesis on Harry Potter. And he says, are you interested in translating my book? And I had to sort of turn what was basically, you know, screaming, jumping up and down, saying, yes, yes, yes. And I had to sort of say it in a cool way, like, um, yes, I think I can make that work. Let's talk. <laughs> Trying um, hard to get <laughs> right i had to make it sound like i wasn't that i wasn't didn't ha- desperate. that I, I wasn't desperate so much as i was finishing my thesis and i had no real idea how to get started properly and we started working and i started working on his on one of his books on route uh, and it was just a really good match in the sense that he really reads bible as literature tanakh as literature and I was fresh out of a liter of a liter, you know, literature, literature degree, so that was that just worked. And at the end of the year, we, we really, enjoy, I really enjoyed working on his book. And then he says, "You know, you should come to Barilan. you should study Tanakh, you should do your doctorate," and um, and I, you know, since it's something that you can really combine with translation, I said, "Iyala," and I went and I did my, I did all the coursework and I studied Akkadian and I did a bunch of courses for prep- in preparation for dissertation, and that really gave me the tools to then go ahead and translate the Tanakh, because just as I was getting started on, a thesis, on a, my dissertation, um, the opportunity to work on the Koran Tanakh translation came up, and I said, you know what, doctor, it's can always pick it up later, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So, Baruch Hashem, there was a lot of hashkicha, um, just in how it all came together, and I started working on the Tanakh.
0: And I just want to say, by the way, as somebody who uses these texts in her daily life, Sarah is really, really great at what she does. Um, your articles and books—I've read them, and they're they're really excellent. Just want to say that here. Thank you. Um, I really, I really have enjoyed them. Uh, no, also because sometimes you're able to take uh, academics who aren't necessarily the, <laughs> necessarily the the most uh, literary writers, and then you turn into something that's really also enjoyable to read. And that's part of that piece about like a certain amount of control that you have over over the text. Thank you. Yes. I'm curious in all the work that you've done. In Koren, and it's also a lot of it is forthcoming. Meaning, mm-hmm. people will bezrat Hashem be benefiting from it. When is that? When is that coming? Um,
2: out? The Tanakh should the first um, the first edition, which is one uh, one volume of the Tanakh. Later, there'll be a separate four volume um, Tanakh with a translation. But for now, it's just one volume. It should be out with within a few months.
0: Wow, uh, well, okay. And I'm curious what when you're translating a book that's been translated a few times before, <laughs> so. What what reference what reference items do you use? How do you go about that? Um, it's a good. One question. second, I'll add another piece, uh-huh. which is that translating Tanakh specifically is an act of parshanut. It's an act of exegesis oh, sure. because there are words, sentences, phrases that can really be understood in so many different ways, and many of them where we do not have any one understanding of them. And so any time there's a translation, that's the first thing I'll always tell my students, if they're ever using translations, just be aware. It's a commentary. It's not really a translation. So I'm curious, how how do you juggle that? What do you use? Um, What sources? It's an
2: excellent question, and it was very um, daunting when I began. Though um, Ronnie Ziegler, who's the editor of the project, he did reassure me by saying, I know this is scary, but don't forget, it's not like we're taking all the translations of the Tanakh away except for yours, or even the Hebrew Tanakh, and all that's going to be left is your translation. All the sources and all, everything's still going to be out there, so that definitely gave me some perspective. It was uh, reassuring. It's a good question. There is no doubt that at least, that, that a good percentage is, is um, definitely um, interpretation. That said, it depends where it depends what you're working. For example, I worked on Nevi'im Shonim and Ivrayamim and Um and there are sections where it's at least ninety-five percent pshat and it's obvious, and there's only one clear meaning. Um, the the you know the question is what happens when you get to these very difficult psukim or even difficult words, different. Um, first of all. I always liked working with Dat Mikra because there's something about a Hebrew um, Hebrew commentaries, not not just Dat Mikra. You know, we had um, different um, advising scholars who tell us which of the best commentaries for every um, every book we were working on. Start. I liked starting with Hebrew commentaries because that wouldn't make you um, it
0: would biased. Sway. It wouldn't it would sway, sway you towards a certain
2: word, yeah. towards a certain phrase. Totally. So we started with that. And that mikra often just brings a lot of the, mefarsh, the you know the major Mefarshima, what they say about each um phrase word whatever whatever it is, so that way it would include a lot of the um you know traditional Jewish commentary mm-hmm. um, and we'd have different books the again the scholar would tell us which are the best books for every which happens to be the best commentaries for every because you know for every book we'd work on because you know for. Yeshua, maybe Anchor Bible and this world commentary and this different commentaries would be good. And in other cases, he'd say,
0: "Ah, eh, that's not so good. Go totally. with this, with this. So I'd just work with a whole bunch of commentaries. And was there, was there like an intentional, like, let's say you open up the book of Yoshua? What is the, what is the intention, you say I want, of what the tone is, right? Every, every week, we have control over the tone that we create. Mm-hmm. So did you have intentions for different books or?
2: So, First of all, Corin's main goal with this new translation was definitely for it to be beautiful, and readable, and fresh, and very accessible to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so when there when there when there are phrases that we'd have to consider, what the commentary was. First of all, there was. There was always always a preference for for traditional commentary as okay. opposed to scholarship, and always for the almost always for the um, Masoretic version of the text. Okay, unless unless all the major mafarshim would say dafka that it's a different word that it's a different um, a different gyrsa, then we'd always go with uh, the MT. Um,
0: in general, for those, I'm just gonna for those of the un, unindated, that uh, there are multiple. Versions of of uh, of the Torah of Neviim. Uh, we're not going to get into the theological piece, but we have uh, very very ancient translations of different books of Tanakh that often serve as witnesses to the fact that there were other versions that circulated. So, without getting too complicated. Too theologically provocative. I'm just explaining what that <laughs> yes, means. Thank you. <laughs> and the Masoretic text, or the MT, refers to the Tanakh as most of you will have it today. If you're holding a Koran Tanakh, that version only came to be. I hope that I'm not saying something wrong, but it only came to be earlier in the 1900s. Meaning, you had up until not all that long ago, various versions that would be circulating. Okay.
2: Well, thank you for clarifying. You know, I just I'm, I, I guess we all, all tend to use you know doctors tend to use medical um, medical terms yeah, that we're course. just yeah. without thinking.
0: So you were using mostly. You had a preference for Jewish commentaries. You had a preference for. You wanted to remain loyal to the to the Masoretic text, and that you had these words that you had in mind of being beautiful and flowing and accessible. Yes,
2: yeah, So that together, Ben solved solved where we should be going and what kind of what kind of um, reading we should um, use. Mm-hmm. Not you know at least ninety five percent of the time. I mean I I feel for those who were on you know, who did um the Nevi'im Achronim and the really difficult texts because right, the later prophets I don't and know all how the... they did that but I Baruch Hashem, you know, we had some their issues here there in Shmuel with the Tzino and all these yeah difficulties but all in all it was reasonably straightforward we could always we have an editing team that we could, every, every book had its um scholar its, it's um accompanying scholar mm-hmm. for every um book that we could always um ask their advice and
0: beautiful. Ori, oh, you're also working on a fairly I I it's it's not the same as the Bible, but it's a fairly monumental text as well, <laughs> which is the Tanya. And so I'm curious also in terms of tone, and influence. You're working specifically on, explain to us, on so a commentary on the on Tanya. The con,
1: Rabbi Adin Steinseltz's commentary on the Tanya. We, the Steinseltz Center is is currently putting out a version of the Tanya, so they are also translating the Tanya text, but um, I personally am on the team that's translating the commentary.
0: What is the overarching goal also? Are there, are there certain words that guide you in the tone you want to create and also in terms of Consulting texts. How does that work for you in your work?
1: Um, so we have a style guide in, and uh, a lot of these big projects that I, that I've worked on. There's a style guide that the that the publisher puts out for that particular project, mm-hmm. and and okay. which has in it just the you know how do we translate this particular term? Which terms do we not translate but actually transliterate? Um, all kinds of questions like that come up in the style guide, so that's a great reference. Um, and then, uh, like Sarah mentioned, like there's also a whole team working on the project at the same time, there there's like a lot of stages that a book goes through. So after translation, there are like multiple editing stages that it's going to go through. So I can always... Ask, you know, ask any of the editors, okay, what, how, how should we deal with this? How, how are we approaching this? Yeah. They even, on the Tanya project specifically, they even have someone who's the official Chabad expert to make sure <laughs> that we're like. Can I ask what that line. is? is that I mean. You're I not allowed know, to say. I, no, it's just Uh-oh. to make sure that we're in line with current Chabad thinking about, about how these things are, are, are translated and thought of. Wow. Um, because I guess a lot of people on the team are, are not Chabad themselves. So, uh, it's an, imp- it's important. It's an important thing.
0: Well. Did you do any preparatory work before you were started the translation? Turns I mean, I don't know, I I I haven't learned the Tanya. I've tried, by the way, I've tried a number of times and I just wasn't able to. So I'm just curious. Like did you have background, did you
1: um, I have minimal background. There's, there's a phenomenon in Australia where, uh, where the shul, even if the shul is not Chabad, the rabbi is. Okay. So I, so oh, So really, I, I grew up with a with a Chabad rabbi and and in a shul, a, very, a small community where so the families were of all different flavors, so including you know many Chabad families within the shul. Um, so, so yes, I grew up with like this pseudo Chabad influence, um, in my life, inc- including a charuta or two in the Tanya, just, uh, you know, when I was young, so not, mm-hmm. not a huge amount of background, but it was, it's just always been something that's a part of me and a, a part of my growing up. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I, and I do, um, I, the, I found an audiobook of uh, lessons in Tanya, which I, which I listened to a little bit before I started just to mm-hmm. kind of get myself into the into the mood totally. into, the, into the vocab and into the into the style of it um.
0: okay I, I really want to touch on the, the creation piece or the act of creation within whatever text one is working on uh, and the first thing I really want to ask you and a read I'll direct this question to you first is how do you view your role? When you're translating, uh, in terms of your role with the text as as part of someone who's creating it, are you just bringing it to a different culture? What is what's the guiding even image or or concept you have in your minds when you're working on these projects?
1: Um, so I th- I think it's it's kind of what I mentioned before of um, of getting getting into their head, getting into their voice. I, mm-hmm. I almost feel like like a vessel hmm. um, that I, I need to channel them. Uh, almost an element of like self-nullifying myself in o- in order to put their words out the mo- the most genuinely and the most honestly. What also you know taking that aspect of myself to make it sound good, but um, but it really is their voice and their their words. Um, I also kind of um, it, it sounds funny to say because I'm the one writing it, but I also kind of feel like a beta tester in a way. Like as well as trying to get into the head of of the writer, I'm also trying to get into the head of the reader and say like. Ah, oh, like, does this sound good? Would, am I enjoying it? Would I want to read it? Does it make sense? Um,
0: Would I be an interested audience?
1: Because I am, I you know, I I am I'm a lay layper- you know, a semi-educated layperson, and and mm-hmm. I want to make sure that um that it, that it sounds good to me mm-hmm. and to readers.
0: Yeah, fair. Sarah, I'm curious for you to weigh in on that question. It's a good
2: question because there is no doubt that the best translations do not sound like a translation. Yes. Therefore, by yes. nature, the more it re- the more fluently it reads you're more invisible. Um, I was thinking about different metaphors used. You know, there's midwife or vessel is definitely a good one. In a way, translation, just to, to translate something in itself, I feel like that's just the best way to describe it. You're translating it from one to the other, and in a way I use translation to depict. I use it as a metaphor for other things as opposed to what metaphor shall I use for translation because it's just so precise. It's just so precise that mm-hmm. you render something from one language into another. I can't think what images come to my head. It's just what
0: I do. Mm-hmm. And do you feel Do you feel like a, a partner in that creation, or do you feel of that text? Um, definitely. Do you feel like you're in charge of the text that you're writing?
2: It always depends on what the text is, mm-hmm. who the author is, who the target audience is, mm-hmm. because there are times, there are certain books I've been really... Part of the process and editing it closely as I translate, and I offer my opinion. And there are other texts that I just have to get done. I get done, and it's more technical. And again, would I say? Would I dare say I am the author of these books I'm translating? When you're translating holy Sarah, texts, do you
0: feel like the author of Sefer Yoshua? <laughs> 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 I think you're authoritative. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, uh, no, I But I, I just want to um, sit on that point for a second. I think it's a really important point that depending on what. Text you're working on your role and how much you're involved will will be different I'll even say just because I do like this metaphor of the midwife maybe just because one of my good friends is a midwife um, but uh, it's it's like also in birth meaning in some births the midwives are instrumental in helping that baby come to the world and in other births they're witnesses meaning they're witnesses they they're there they're there to comfort they're there to you know use touch or help and support when needed but their role is more minimal. So I think that you're speaking to that kind of piece where it really depends on what the project is, how much Sarah appears or is part of that creation process. I also want us to get at this the woman question, which I am I am uh, being obstinate about asking in all of these conversations. Um because uh because I'm curious to hear how people reflect or don't reflect in it. Not reflecting on it is also interesting, is also an interesting piece. But uh at least what you're currently working on. Are all texts that were written by men, uh, and we are not. And I'm curious. I, one of you could start. Whoever wants to start with this one first, how you how you interact with that piece is it is the identity piece there for you? Is there do you feel empowered by what you're doing? Do you feel that it's something ironic? You think it's not a big deal at all? I'm just curious if you could speak to that that question about being a woman, modern woman who's educated, translating texts that were. Written either anciently by men or, or not so anciently, or maybe I'll read that we could start with that.
1: I don't really necessarily think of it as, as written by a male. Um, I think, I think of myself as a woman, um, with this tremendous to translate these words of a Torah giant and to be able to like have some tiny piece in, in spreading it to many, many more people. That said, there, I mean it. Definitely, it definitely comes up. Like, I'll I'll mention something that that bothers me a little bit is um, the pronouns. Um, in a lot of the projects that I have worked on, um, the the policy is to kind of try to start the particular sentence or the particular paragraph section with um, with more general term like um, the person should or one should do this and that. But then, if it gets unwieldy, uh, the policy is th- that it gets unwieldy to keep using one should do this with one's that and one, yeah. you know, and the and so we switch uh, to he, him, his, um, and never to her. You're saying never to her, right? Yeah. Um. And and yeah, and especially uh, yeah, it it does bother me because uh, these works are for all Jewish people and can really help all Jewish people to come closer to Hashem, and yet it excludes. Women, it it, it excludes me. It excludes all of us. I just want to
0: say that I don't think that I'm the most sensitive on this question and topic, even considering all different things I've done in my life. But I will say that even if we're not sensitive to it, when we spend our life getting used to reading texts that don't address us, we get used to not being addressed. Um, And so even if I don't read it and feel that my my, uh, feathers are ruffled, right, or I don't... Think it's a big deal. Like God forbid, don't have any negative feelings towards the person who wrote it. Right? Who that certainly was nowhere in the cultural sensitivity of the time. But as women, when we continually read texts and we're not the addressed the addressed audience, it it actually goes somewhere very deep inside of us. And I think that we just also often get very used to not being addressed. So I think that that's an interesting point you're bringing up. I'll think that in, in modern books that are right, even let's say parenting books, they'll always say at the beginning of the book that I'm going to freely interchange him or her when speaking about the baby, right? Whatever the baby book is. And they do it very, very intentionally and they tell you, and it's significant because it means that the default child is not a male child, right? Certainly for those of us who have only children of the opposite of the, of the female persuasion. So that's particularly poignant, but it's a, it's a very purposeful, um part of the writing so i think that that's a really interesting piece to bringing up and uh yeah and it, w- it would be unusual if a jewish translation of a rabbinic text would say yeah we're gonna go with the whole flowing in and out with the him and her thing you know throughout right. throughout the translation i
1: mean there are other options as well like w- they could use them and they in the singular what's which i
0: called which a general in english what's i i don't know i don't know it's called in hebrew General pronouns, so, yeah, something I mean, like that. It's become a
1: lot more common, definitely, in spoken, you know, in spoken English. It's extremely yeah. common. Um, it's just yeah, not yet thought to be, especially in Jewish texts, it's, it's, not, it's not the done thing yet. Maybe it will be at some point.
0: Interesting. Sarah, what do you think about this piece? So I think,
2: like Orit, I've never had much of an issue with, as a woman, translating a male voice um what's interesting is both on the Steinzeit um Talmud and Tanya apparently team and the Tanakh team most of the translators are women now this was not intentional this was not a conscious effort to hire women and to empower nothing like this I think on Lehefech I think the fact that women were just chosen because they were uh, all the people on the team are excellent translators I think Speaks volumes of, I hope where the world is going to. The fact that this isn't this—we weren't out, and there was no what, what's the word? Corrective um, affirmative action. I mean, there was no affirmative action uh-huh. here. This was just they took translators according to who the best translators were, mm-hmm. um, and that is. I don't. I never think of myself. Oh, wow, it's wonderful that I, as a woman, am translating this test. I say, wow. How many people, men or women, get to have this privileged position of translating this text for such a wide audience? Mm-hmm. This is a huge privilege. I don't think of the gender issue much. It doesn't really come up for me. It you, doesn't really come not, up it's for me. Not for you yes. in your, in your I tend way. to be more articulate in writing than speech. I just feel like I need to point that out.
1: <laughs> <It's completely identical. laughs> I think I'm, I'm like, okay. all the words,
2: when, my, my, when I'm typing, they come to my yes, fingers. they do. And they when I'm speaking, do. I sound like I don't really do words very much.
0: It's um, the, you, you do a wonderful job. I, I, uh, Sarah, I, if you can share with us, you wrote a text for us. Right, that you so I add. wanted to
2: say, like read the problem in this respect, the problem with Hebrew is such a naturally gendered language as opposed to English. Yeah, you a have a piece. neutral eye. You have a neutral... There's this inherent neutrality in, in gender neutrality in English you don't have in Hebrew. So there was a real question when you're translating Tilim. I say, the whole book of Tilim starts with Ashrei Ha'ish. Mm-hmm. but, uh, but right, lucky, it's not lucky that, is the man it's lucky not is that women man. are supposed to be or happy or fortunate but women aren't it's not like women are supposed to go and yet it starts with such a strong now there is a certain there is um alliteration in this do we do we you know there's it's it's striking. It's a very strong way to begin the book. But how, as women, do I f- as a translator? I really did say, "I this should speak to me the same way it speaks to happy as the man." So I actually did translate um, translated happy as the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand on the path of sinners, who does not sit among the jeering cynics.
0: Way, I'm just going to make sure that everyone caught that. I mean, instead of saying happy as the man ha-ish. or mm-hmm. lucky as the man, so we've turned it into the general one.
2: To happy as the one. Mm-hmm. And then I did I remember with the translation process I would I did want to try and use a more neutral they instead the lord lord's teaching is all their desire there was a group decision to go with all instead the lord's teaching is all his desire um so it was it was a we, there was an attempt to try and f- To go with more gender neutral language to. Yeah, with the gendered, with the gendered pronouns. The gendered pronouns. But it was, it's not, it it can be awkward or people aren't used to it. Now, I personally do think that we should just embrace them and their as a gender neutral, all inclusive Mm -hmm. pronoun. And within about a few books into it, we just get used to it because I already have and it sounds normal and natural to my ear. I do wonder if a lot of the higher up editors who are just been around for longer and they're more used to a certain convention mm-hmm. style and doesn't speak to them but I do think that's the general direction we're pushing for and I hope uh, we can get there because and th- but there was, there were issues I remember with Kuf for example it's a called sh- Gevri mm-hmm. sh- and then you say wow it is a bit more gendered the content is in the man is in the field and the woman uh, ish- so ch- is ch- man, and what do you do there is that should, that, should we retain the masculine voice there should we, um, well, not really the masculine voice—the magic ma- that the masculine topic that it concerns mm-hmm. a man—or do we go with something more to downplay that? Still, it's it's these are questions in a in, in when we're translating a text from an ancient world from a different just okay. a different culture. How do we trans? How do we translate it into something that can really speak to men and women and boys and girls alike?
0: Right, that's beautiful. So what you're both really saying is that. As a translator, you don't really think about your identity as a woman working on these texts but what you do think about very much working on these Hebrew texts is the is the fact that Hebrew as a language has male and female right which we don't have in, in English in that same way in the same in the same pronounced way. Uh, And that that really, that really comes up for you. And so when you're trying to think about, I want this to speak to a broader audience, how can I translate these words so that they will actually be fully addressing all the people in that audience? And so sometimes depending on who your team is, what your expectations are, you're able to broaden that, broaden that, uh, audience and include them if the context is correct and fitting for it and sometimes it's not necessarily the stylized norms yet of what you're working on and it might even go against to a certain degree the the actual sense of the text so therefore it won't be it won't be done that way i
1: think it's a really interesting piece um there's something else that i that i thought of uh, that um about what I mentioned that being a vessel and kind of the Mm -hmm. self-nullification and how that connects to being a woman because I think that in society in general women are pretty good at shrinking themselves in order to make space for others. I didn't want to say that before but that's what I was thinking. (laughs) You don't have to include it. (laughs) No, totally. I think that it's
0: an important piece. I think are there more female translators, I'm curious to ask, than male well, that, translators?
1: Well, that, what made me think of it is that Sarah said oh, yeah. that, that there are so many of us uh, I think working that there on this project. Women might have less of an issue being a vessel. <laughs> I mean, there are also many ma- male translators who are wonderful, of course. Of course. But um, it's just, yeah, it is very interesting.
0: Yeah.
2: Yes. So I did want to say in that context, as being a woman translator, I do think that that slight, maybe the the, femi- the the ear of a mother gave a certain, I, I did um, change a, tra- a classic telium translation, a common term used for most, most of the time, most translations I've seen. It just drew, drew my attention. I did make a change that was more, I don't know if a man could even see it, um, would necessarily perceive the, what was strange with the text to me. There's um, the famous um, Kuflamad Aleph. Which is um Shiram Alot David, Shemlo gavali Gavalibi, Velo Muinai, Lo Alakti Bigdolot, Viniflot, Beniflaut, Mimini. Do you just read your translation also? So I will after, oh, after. the 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 Pasukbet is Imloshiviti Vro uh Domamti Nafsi Kigamul Alay eleimo Kagamul Alai napshi. Now this this so this is um it's a it's a very short um um teal, it's only three Psukim the um, song of da- uh, the essence of David. Lord, my heart is not proud, my eye is not raised too high, I do not concern myself with great affairs or things beyond me. Now, as for basukbet, ale'imo, I all the translations I've ever seen in English were always like a weaned child upon his mother, like a weaned child. Mm-hmm. And that always seems so strange to me because, definitely in a modern context, weaned is such a an intrusive word, it doesn't really fit the context of the, two, of the, of the mismore. Like, why are we talking about a weaned child? I mean, nowadays, you know, classically means a young child who, presumably, who's certain recently been weaned, weaned from nursing. Nowadays, the weaned child, I mean, I don't know about you two mothers. When you think of weaned, what's the first thing you think of is, for me, it's potty training. You know, if you have a weaned child who's at, and I found it very, um, Intrusive in this context, so I changed it to but I have made my soul calm and quiet, like a soothed child against his mother, like a soothed child what? is my soul within me. Which just seemed to you know, you were talking about Gamul, it's not this kid who's been weaned. You don't want to separate, you don't want to emphasize the fact that he's recently separated, separated from his mm-hmm. mother in a certain sense. He is Gamul, ga, you know, Gamalalalai. Tovlo, he's he's calm, he's relaxed. He wants to. He's he's nestled against his mother. He's he's calm and quiet. My soul is calm, like a soothed child, like a child resting on his mother. Mm. And I don't know if maybe a parent, any parent, but you could see why I think you'd need a a mother's a mother's eye to to recognize and change that change that word.
0: Interesting. The biblical scholar in me is starting to like scroll through the uses of gimel, mem, Lamed throughout Tanakh, but it really is it really is varied. So I think there's a lot of interpretive space here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really fascinating. Oh, we're going to have to co- bring this conversation to a close, but uh, but this has been really uh, really interesting, and I I also. Translators do such important work, and really, no one, no one gets to meet them. So, uh, so I'm really happy that we've been able to, to bring you here. Um, and, uh, and I just wanted to end off, I always ask sort of a, a series of lightning round questions. So either of you could feel free to jump in, by the way. Well, I'll just put the question out here in the middle of the table, and you'll, uh, you'll feel free to, to answer, okay? This one, you're probably going to have uh, a lot of answers to. But what book or books are currently on your nightstand?
1: You're looking at me, so <laughs> <laughs> um I actually just finished Naarha of A Naim by El Amir. It's an autobiographical novel about uh, a young ole from Iraq in the nineteen fifties and that the experience of that group of Jews, which was uh, I, I do recommend. It was a beautiful book.
2: Um a bunch. They're usually a bunch. Um, you know, reading is always it, I also think reading it's just been natural for me forever, and it's just one of the, my favorite things. And also, I think it's important. I guess as a Israeli, American, a whatever English speaker living in Efrat, um, you just have to keep your English up, because otherwise. Um, but I just recently, I actually really recently read my way through Potok again, Chaim Potok, and just
0: that
2: was a goal the of the my book. last
0: year, and I wasn't successful. So,
2: I pretty much read everything, you know, start with The Chosen and uh, The Promise. My name is so recently. What really started me on the Poto kick was um, The Book of Lights, which is just beautiful. So I read that for the first time and it really just made me say, okay, here, I'm just going to go with him. Um, I just started The Three-Body the three Problem. It's by a Chinese author. It's um, a Hugo Award-winning um, science fiction book. The Tape Letters, something I like to read. Dip mm-hmm. into C.S. Lewis. I like to dip into that. Um, those are...
0: That's a pretty nice variety. Just um, two. <laughs> if you could sit down for coffee or tea, whatever you like to drink, with anybody, anyone in the whole world, who would it be?
1: Um, I would love to go back a few generations in my own family and meet my ancestors. I um, I grew up in a balshuva family without knowing a lot of my family history, so my parents did not grow up religious. Their parents did not grow up religious, but mm. before that. They were Lithuanian, you know, regular Jews, and I would love to know what their life was like and also kind of connect to them. What was their spiritual life like? What was their connection to Hashem, to Torah? I'm, like, fascinated. I feel like I, like, inherited it from them, but don't, don't know them. They don't know, don't know what it, exactly they don't know what it was. Yeah. yeah. Wow.
2: Well. So if we're going play to the, play the fantasy game, I can't think of any Tanakh figure in Tanakh. It wouldn't be interesting to talk to. But more realistically, I guess J.K. Rowling.
0: <laughs> let's invite her to a frat, guys. Yeah, I have to say, Let, let's I just invite her. her and do like it. Why wouldn't she want to come from Scotland I to be surprised. to a frat? I she's, think that she would find apparently it she's a wonderful woman. I, I will. I'll work on it. My daughter would be thrilled because she's can't celebrate. We've actually had to confiscate
1: them. Um, okay, what is Orit, What is your favorite tefillah? Uh, my favorite tefillah is Ashrei. Um, I especially love the line Karov Hashem lechol korav lechol Asheri keruhu veemet just this idea that um if you want closeness to him you just have to genuinely cry out to him and and he's right there he's close beautiful sarah
0: something unexpected that people wouldn't know that you feel passionate about other than writing and literature
2: um again i don't know if it's particularly interesting i have a few hobbies right now i'm harboring a obsession with mosaics um are you making them yes oh in fact, so okay. I was up ridiculously late last night, just finishing something. Oh, wow. Um, I'm just
0: sharing here that Sarah is very creative and artistic. And if you want anyone to paint your walls, Dom, don't ask her. She's not a freelancer in that, but she's really, really creative thank and you loves yourself. color.
2: <laughs> I do. So thank you, Yosefa. So that's just something I love. And love my neighborhood.
0: Yes, Wonderful people in my neighborhood. Beautiful. I love mm.
1: Are you, any? Uh, um, I love musicals. Um, yeah, I listened to the Hamilton soundtrack many, many, many times.
2: That was definitely the uh, corona um, mainstay in our house. All the kids know all the words.
0: I, I honestly I haven't actually heard it. Uh, I know I'm, I'm countercultural at this point. Uh, exotic location you would like to visit, Sarah. First that comes to mind.
2: Oh my God, just to renew my passport. It's been a rough year.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Go anywhere. Anywhere that will take me. Ori. what about you? I'm the ocean. I I grew up next to some of the most beautiful beaches in the world, and uh, and I miss being so close to the ocean. Wow.
0: Okay. I hear that. I love the ocean. I didn't grow up next to it, but I have a strange affinity for it as well. Um, Let's close out our conversation today. I just would like to hear one thing that each of you are grateful for in your life at the current moment. Sarah.
2: After this year... It's this year has really been like the Mashal with the man with the small house, with the small house and the goats for us. I know it sounds cliche, but after this year, I'm just grateful for everything.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Um so my brother Zev, um he's actually a podcast producer. He he works for Israel Story. And I told him that I was very nervous to come on this podcast and he (laughs) talked to me about it. He said, No, it's gonna be fun, it's gonna be great, it's just gonna be a conversation. He did a practice with me. Oh wow. So I'm I'm very grateful for family and friends who have my back. And um and I'm also very grateful for my children's Jewish education, which is worlds apart from the Jewish education that I received.
0: Wow. Beautiful. I really want to thank you both for coming here, and uh, it's been a real pleasure and so much fun to get to speak about uh, our professional lives together. So uh, I'm really wishing you tremendous tzedakah and that a real gift that you're bringing the world, that you're bringing these texts to a broader audience, and uh, it's going to impact people in ways that we'll never even know. Which is the which is the beauty of art and bringing that, the beauty of art and Torah, and bringing it to the world. So thank you so much. Thank you, Yosefa Thank you for having us. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I am Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes and Matan's website and write us any feedback. At podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.